You're listening to the Spandex Power Armor Podcast. Blatant propaganda for the DPRK. Hello, and welcome back to the Spandex Power Armor Podcast. After technical problems, scheduling issues, and Golgon plots, we are back discussing the obscure side of kaiju movies. In particular, kaiju movies from South and North Korea. Two for the price of one. Well, in this case, it's three for the price of one. Because on the South Korean side, we have not one Yongari, but two. We should... we're trying to be excited with this, but... Oh, you're trying. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've <laughs> thoroughly given up any kind of pretense of enthusiasm for this particular subject, and I'm the one who suggested it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. I, I have fun memories of watching Pulgasari with me, with my best chum and riffing it. Little did I realise I'd have to watch it again on my own. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those who are out of the know of the incredibly obvious fact of Korean kaiju films, in 1985, Pulgasari was released in North Korea, which was their own take on the return of Godzilla, and they captured... I'm, I'm going to have to stop you there. You used the word released. Unleashed is the word. Unleashed. <laughs> Yeah, and that was incredibly controversial, as um, famous South Korean director Shin Sang-ok and actress uh, Choi Yun-hee, his, um, ooh, he was his ex-wife at the time, I think? Yeah, yeah they, they were kidnapped. Married in, yeah, they were um, together in the 60s and 70s, I think, mm. and they separated, and then Shin was kidnapped in the very late 70s, I want to say. And only managed to escape. Spoiler alert: they they escaped um, around eighty six. Either either way, they were there for longer than anyone should be. Yeah, yeah. He was um, initially kidnapped after Choi was done, so she was the baited one. It's really unfortunate considering this, but it all ends up like the reason they escaped was Pulgasari, this monster film, this piece of propaganda. And it's now when when he bizarre. says monster film, he's he's, he's 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 referring to the monstrosity that is the film, not the genre it belongs to. Hey, we enjoyed it the first time round. We were just getting into it. Yeah. We appreciated no, 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 the no. symbolism, no, the no. decent-ish writing, we, and the strong female character. We did enjoy the film. We enjoyed each other's company. The film merely facilitated that. Oh, trauma bonding. I get it. Trauma, but absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely uh, go into some more detail on Pulgasari later. Um, what can we say about Yongari other than... Uh, giant monster, but, but Korean this time. It's Godzilla with none of the charm. Um, well, it depends. Which, which Yongari are we talking about first? We're starting with the, uh, with the worst one. Start with Yongari 2 or Reptilian or Yongari 2000. What's it called? Yongari 2000 Upgraded or something like that. Featuring Dante from the Devil May Cry series and Knuckles. <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah. Um, they tried to remake, um, you know, cult, massive science fiction kaiju Korean hit, uh, Yongari Monster from the Deep, and they decided to put their own twist on it. It was initially made, well, released in South Korea in 1999, I think. And... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, that, that's very important. Take note of that date. Mm. This is a post-1998 Roland Emmerich Godzilla world we're talking about here. 
when you bear that in mind, it's also a post Independence Day world. <laughs> Both Independence Days, you know, the real one and the uh, the one with the founding fathers. Um, it uh, okay. Look, the the movie is just Independence Day with bits of Godzilla spliced in. I'm gonna say that straight off the bat. It's important for me to establish that so that you understand why I hate this movie so much. It's I'm not exaggerating. It's just that we did not have access to the original version, but instead we had to access the 2001 upgrade edition. Now, keep in mind that this is post uh, Godzilla 98. This is um, a period when you know big CGI kaiju films. It's like okay, that was a thing that happened, and we finally got a Western release of it. And you could tell that the company distributing it had so much confidence in the film that it was renamed from renamed from Yongari to uh, Reptilian. And the DVD cover oh, art is name. like a just a perfect asylum ripoff of Godzilla '98. And I see it and I think, wow, this is some bargain basement crap. And I was correct when I saw the film. It was just such a mishmash of so many 90s blockbuster tropes all put into one but with no charm. See, the way you worded the beginning of that made it sound like there was a potential for us to have watched the original 1999 uh, version. There is no way to watch the 99 version. It was only released at the premiere. It's never had a home release. This is, this is, what, this is their best foot forward with this movie. This horribly re-edited mess. Now, what was what they thought was good? the difference between the '99 and the 2001 version? Well, we can't say we we weren't there at the premiere. There's been no the big the big differences that we know of is that they replaced a bunch of special effects. They 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 George Lucas it. They really George Lucas it. They they replaced. They made suits, and you can see little bits and bobs. They 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 replaced them with CGI. It, they they changed the plot as well. Uh, apparently, it's worse. <laughs> it was, so, did the previous I, one have the aliens in? Probably. I'm genuinely shocked that the aliens weren't CGI'd up. They had a. They they had a they had a good, a good looking Yongari suit, and they just completely covered it up with CGI. You can see like bits and bobs when Younger is thrown through a building because they can't see Jai around that, obviously. You say it got George Lucas up. I think this film would have done so much better with the inclusion of Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, no, uh, that would have... Jar Jar Binks... Yeah. I don't hate Jar Jar Binks, and him being in this movie would have given me something entertaining. I don't find him funny, but I don't despise him, and he doesn't inspire genuine hatred within me. This movie does... I genuinely think this movie is a colossal waste of everyone's time and resources and energy. Hold on Everybody there, Roger Ebert. <laughs> Why are you putting those two thumbs? <laughs> I just can't. So what was the premise for Yongari 1999? Uh, now, there is a I... key difference in the title, isn't there? In the original one, in was that 60s or 70s? Uh, 67, I think. 67? Yeah, there was just the 1G. But with this, it's Young Gary. And it's great, because the pronunciation changes. I'm pretty sure that's just... I'm pretty sure that's just, um... With how Western distributors spelled it. You know, how Gamera sometimes has two Oh, right, okay. 
Or Godzilla is somehow sometimes pronounced Gigantis. Ah, yes, Gigantis the Fire Monster, the uh, well-known pseudonym. The artist formerly known as Gigantis. That's going to be my uh, new rap pseudonym. Oh, man. So the, the, the premise of the movie, you said? Like I said, it's it's just Independence Day, but with a Godzilla thing in it. It's uh, I can't muster up any more enthusiasm to describe it other than that. That's 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 all it deserves. That's all they put in. That's all they're getting from me. Well, for those masochists who want to know more, it starts off with your standard stereotypical, um, you know, beginning in some Asian cave. There's a stock flute sound effect, and some scientists come across a bunch of runes written on walls. That what well, you see? Are later, that stock flute sound effect you mentioned. It, it it confused me for the rest of the movie because they the way they portray it, the way we're introduced, we're slid into the movie, I'm all geared up for it to be set in some generic Asian country because that is the exact same sound cue they use when they're going into Asia. Like, if, if, if it's any kind of made-for-TV episode and they're, they're switching to a, somewhere in China, it's the exact same thing. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, cool. We're in Korea. This is where the movie's going to take place. Naturally, I would assume that. It's, it's made by Koreans. It was given the support by the Korean government, but no. Uh, there, it's all it, China. It, this movie is confusing. I was so confused for like the first hour of the movie because I was convinced somehow there was just a bunch of weird yanks in South Korea. But they're not. It's meant to be America. Mm. Cont- continue. I, I just. I well, it starts out continue. in Korea. And that's what leads them to America, because they see these hieroglyphics that they can somehow read, and it leads them to the remains of Yongari, and they describe it as a giant dinosaur, millions of years don't, old. Don't forget the uh, the ancient alien. That's awesome. Well, don't worry, we're getting to Xenu next. And what interests me <laughs> is that somehow these dinosaur remains are somehow spoken of in folklore as you know being cursed or something i'm thinking how would that knowledge have been passed through what what crapola is this and it only gets weird from there because at the same time they dig up yongari's skeleton aliens invade and they reanimate the skeleton <laughs> this is alien necromancy this is a this is a plan nine from outer space style plot and in some applications it would have been great but no it is Terrible, and that's the most interesting part about the film because now you have a subpar monster film with a terrible CGI kaiju, which also then cuts to footage of aliens and footage of government people talking about the aliens. Like, okay, yeah, sure, we have all this knowledge. It is the most half-assed Independence Day knockoff. It hurts. It doesn't even have knockoff Jeff Goldblum. It does, however, have knockoff Nick Topolis from Godzilla 1998. And he, he's yes. not even. Now, I really don't like Matthew Broderick, and I think he's a charisma vacuum. This guy is less charismatic than Matthew Broderick. <laughs> like he, he's dressed like Nick Topolis. He's got the the cap and everything, but he he contributes nothing to this story. I don't remember if he is present in the story beyond Yongari's awakening. I, th- I genuinely mm. do not remember if he's there or not. Was he supposed to be a protagonist? Because he does bugger all. Well, all the human characters I think... do bugger all. I think isn't 
crazy old man scientist who tried to warn them of young Gary, supposed to be the good guy. But what about the female scientist lady? Is, There's just nothing. This is a good point. We don't know who the protagonist is. Was young Gary supposed it's to be the Holly. protagonist? Because he spends the entire Maybe beginning the of the film was, was just the under alien control. And only at the end is he like free and fighting another monster. I think for sanity's sake, we're just going to have to draw a line in the sand. And old man McGee and Holly, I only know her name because I wrote it down in my notes, are deuteragonists. They, they share the title. That's okay. the only way we're going to get beyond this point. Because there really isn't any clear-cut main character. Like you think it might be evil archaeologist man who dies like not even halfway into the movie. Oh yes, when Young Gary is reanimated, he thinks that he can stop it by screaming, "I was it? I, I created you." Yeah, that crap. I'm thinking. No, he didn't. If you there were, took him off. if he had some sort of ties to this alien invasion bollocks, then yeah, sure. But no, he just dies quickly. We no longer have a human antagonist. It's now just aliens. <laughs> Yeah, but the aliens barely do anything directly. They just summon monsters. Only yeah. two. They final wars it as well. They keep teleporting on guard yep. to different locations Actually, and stuff. And... I, I want yeah. I want to handle all that separately because that is a, a, a thing that I want to... I don't think people... Realize it because I don't think anyone's watched Younger in ages. I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna deal with that one later. That's a big bed bug, uh, a bugbear of mine. Bit of pet peeve. There are words. It really boils oh. your goat. It rustles your jimmies. Yeah, my jimmies have been well and truly rustled. We'll have to install the jimmy meter just to see how rustled we get. Can we attach like a heart rate to a podcast thing just when we talk about stuff that we? I mean. God, I, I kind of despise this film. I don't really have anything interesting oh, to do. say about it. It is just bland. It is the blandest of the bland. Even the scene where you have soldiers with jetpacks and laser guns flying <laughs> yes. around, okay, this movie, fighting a monster. This movie has so many elements that should that sound cool on paper. Alien necromancy. It's jetpack soldiers with lasers fighting a giant robot. A giant robot. A giant monster. There are things that should be cool. They're not. At no point did I think, "Oh, cool." No, it. It was. They could have been cool. It, so much of this movie could have been cool, and it was not. What really interests me is that they tried to flex on other films. Like when when they <laughs> oh, had the jetpacks out, they they actually said, you know, compared to this guy, Godzilla is a pussy. I'm like. D don't say that unless you can back it up. This film looked yes. awful. It was 90s bargain bin trash, but it was the most expensive South Korean film made at the time. When you are... Yongari, in no way, shape or form, is the movie you can use to dunk on Godzilla. Godzilla is a cultural landmark. He's been officially um, declared a, a cultural ambassador for Japan, he has code the original Godzilla codified an entire goddamn genre and brought catharsis to a nation who was still struggling under the pressure of nuclear annihilation from both bombs being dropped in Japan to the Lucky Dragon number no. five incident to nukes being tested pretty much on their doorstep. That movie is important to so many people for so many things. And Yongari, not even the original, 
the remake, the horrible, horrible remake that doesn't rip off the original Godzilla, it rips off 98 Godzilla, has the absolute balls to try and dunk on Godzilla. It sounds like I'm getting a bit too worked up over something that shouldn't matter. Maybe I am. It just really boils my piss that they <laughs> thought that they could get away with that. If 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 Gamera one, two, or three, the the Heisei ones, did that, it would rough ruffle my feathers a bit. But they could get away with it because they did make a superior film to the contemporary Godzilla films. Yonguri nineteen ninety nine two thousand one isn't even better than Godzilla ninety eight. What was the budget of Yonguri? It was thirteen and a half million U.S. dollars. Most expensive. How much was Gamera? Like you said. Gamera was I can't remember off the top of my head less than that. I think it might have been I think it might have been single digit um Wow. Millions. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's something along those lines. Um it also had, I think, eighteen months of production time. That's an incredibly short turnover. Weren't six months spent designing the maquettes for the monsters and then having them digitally scanned in? It's not as quick of a turnover as as you think it might be. They they weren't they didn't spend six months working on the maquettes and then the rest of the movie. It would have been all done alongside each other. They had more. They they had everything going from. They had so much support. Yeah, the support of the Korean government, and then I can't remember which city it was, but they had the support of a particular city. Um, so many so many entities were pouring money into this project to make it work and it just didn't wow it had everything going for it i understand that when you have a lot of um a lot of producers a lot of um uh what, what's it investors that's what i'm looking for it, it, you run the risk of ruining a project but there wasn't any obvious meddling from what i could see there was no obnoxious product placement there was no Ooh, uh, we're shooting in this particular location because it's all meant to be in America. At no point is it made explicitly clear that they are in Korea. Hmm. I. If so it, you were to watch this out of the blue, and you had no prior knowledge of the film, you would not know that it's a Korean film. It has a largely you know American Caucasian cast, and when you say largely, it's a hundred percent. There are a few black guys, uh, a few Hispanics. It, I, no, I swear I saw a Korean or two. Crew? Or was I hallucinating? Quite probably. You ever hallucinate Koreans? No. No? Do, no, do, they, do they never, like, do you dream? <laughs> I dream of electric sheep. We've ah, this. android. Um, yeah, I was almost thinking of a better film then. I mean, the Ongari remake makes Pulgasari feel like it wasn't shot at gunpoint by comparison. I don't like disliking movies to this extent. There are very few movies that I do. Batman vs. Superman is one of the only ones that springs to mind that makes me feel so vehemently bereft of joy, levity, and enthusiasm. Any other movie that I... Anything else I profess to hate, I usually have something nice to say about it or, or something that I secretly deep down enjoy about it. For example, I really don't like Kamen Rider Ghost. I really don't. The suit design, though... Yeah, that's pretty sick. I, I like it. But this, this, there is no... With the product that we were presented with, at no point did I think that anything was worthy of my attention. Not because I consider myself to be particularly high or, or of a higher status than this movie. The, I, I, I've 
horrible self-esteem. I'm, I consider myself pretty damn low on the list of importance. That's how horrible I think this movie is. This movie is beneath even me, according to my own self-worth. <laughs> that is a horrible indictment of this film. We stopped about two-thirds of the way in. We just paused it and <laughs> talked about asylum films. Yes. Because in comparison, because they something. seemed more interesting. And we were like looking at the mockbusters. We saw the one for their own version of War of the Worlds, which seemed like a more competent knockoff of Independence Day to some extent. In the very least, oh, in I, the poster. I, 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 only, I only started that because I saw the poster for that uh, weird Hansel and Gretel uh, Brothers Grimm Avengers thing and I wanted to work up to it to see your reaction. That was more of that for a new for episode because that would be its own it's its own brand of wonderful. What, you want to do an asylum thon? You'll buy it. I'm not paying money for those things. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm down to do that, but I'm not I'm not buying them. I'll ring up John Asylum and ask for <laughs> everything. I'll ask him for an affiliate as well. We want to get paid for this. I want a signed copy of Sunday School Musical. <laughs> Oh, that movie sounds like it would be... We're doing it. We're doing it again. We're going on an asylum tangent when we should be focusing on Yongari. This is what happens. Yongari is so devoid of any merit that we can't focus on it without concentrating on focusing on it. Yeah. Um, God, the beginning is just so boring. Um, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. It's just 90s B-movie. The beginning is so boring. The rest of it is so boring. The whole movie is so horribly boring. How do they make it boring? <laughs> I don't understand how they messed up so badly. Well, yeah. On no level does this movie work for anything. It doesn't make me particularly want to go to Korea. I think that's part of why they... It made me want to destroy Korea with my own monster. I've seen three Korean films. Uh, one of them is called Wuchi Demon Slayer. And it's about a man, an immortal, who slays demons and it's schlocky as hell. That is a much better movie than this. Parasite is a better kaiju movie than Yongari. Oh, actually, I keep meaning to get around to watching Parasite. It's meant to be pretty good. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Of course, yeah, it is a monster movie, because the real monster is man. <laughs> See, that's, a re that's the kind of vibe that you get from older Taku things, where there's always someone at the end saying, maybe the real monster is us, after all. Where, usually when it's just a monster that's trying to eat or stuff, or just following nature. Um, there is one interesting thing about this, though. I know that we cited it a couple of times while watching it, but didn't this film kind of it it was final wars before final wars final wars so yeah no weirdly enough um partway i think like halfway or so through this movie um i i noticed something about this looks a bit like final wars when yongari gets beamed up by the aliens and then as the movie progressed more and more i started saying stuff like oh hey that's kind of like in final wars too and oh that is also kind of like in Final Wars. Uh, it just came to a point where the aliens shot a meteorite, or what looks like a meteorite, at Earth that decimated most of the city. Another monster came out of it, and it, it, it was just the Monster X Kaiser Ghidorah sequence. Yeah, all pretty over much. Again. And it's this weird, crappy looking Gamera with lobster claws that can. It's quadrupedal as well. Yeah, oh god, it's this weird centaur thing. And, what, well, it can survive having its head cut off and it's all badass and stuff. And I'm thinking, hang on, why didn't the aliens use that first if that was easier yeah. than resurrecting Yongari? I, I mean, surely, like, you'd resurrect Yongari after you've had other big messed up tentacle monster do its thing you would think you would think 
uh, clearly no one involved in the making of this movie thought. Otherwise we would have gotten something of value. We did not. It was so underwhelming. Final Wars is fun. I have a lot of fun whenever I watch Final Wars. This was not fun. Final Wars was camp. It was schlock. It was great. The closest it came to getting fun for me, or the closest I got to feeling anything, was when I was watching through it and saying, oh, oh no, this is like Final Wars. <laughs> it was pretty grim. Um, I did quite enjoy spotting uh, scenes where they did use young Gary's suit or just physical props, like when he was downed, you could see his tail or you could see the suit crashing into a building, something that does kind of make sense, but the problem is with this, it would be better if they reversed it. So rather than it being a physical prop during the parts where you only see it at a distance or moving quickly, no, it should be a proper monster suit that you see first and foremost. You're not going to see this horrible PS2 era cutscene crap. No, then it should be the CGI in things that don't need the monster in focus or stuff that can't really be done practically. It's just... It brings the choir on that one. <laughs> oh, it I is messed agree. up. Especially back then, CGI should never have been used to um, make monsters, only to uh, supplement where the practical effects could not quite keep up. Like they did with Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, definitely. Really masterful use of CGI there. Um, oh, I'm quite surprised they didn't try and rip off Jurassic Park. They were just stuck on Independence Day in Godzilla. Yeah, they were just massive fans of Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, apparently. Good lord, I, I just oh, remembered one scene where Yongari's in a city and he dodges missiles from a helicopter <laughs> several times, just straight yes. up knocking off a scene from 98 Godzilla, which people, you know, are, um, what's the term, split about, but it is still a good film. It's not a great Godzilla film, but it uses the Godzilla name just to get out there because, hey, it's it's there in the zeitgeist. But it's still a competently made film with really good scenes. It's really engaging. It's got charm. It's got some soul to it. Um, Point being, you can have fun with it. Yeah. You can't have fun with Yon Gary. No. I hate this movie so much. I really genuinely despise it. I will never watch it again. Can we just screw everything and talk about Pulgasari? We're going to have to suffer the um, oh, yeah. Look, 60s Yongari. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check my notes because this movie will not stay in my mind for longer than is absolutely necessary. If there's nothing in there that I particularly care about talking about, then by all means, let's move on. Actually, no, I want to do Pulgasari second. We're going to do the second Yongari after this. <laughs> we need something to stay awake. <laughs> this is how dispassionate we feel about this, by the way. This is not us being unprofessional. Because we're not professionals. We are just <sighs> this movie is just so bored terrible. by it. What what's next on my young Gary notes for this? Um, okay, they made Yongari's a scene with given no character. Yeah, he isn't. Made a scene with laser guns He's and jetpacks and whelming. Um, pew pew. Oh, the alien plot doesn't affect anything. Yeah, they don't interact with anyone. The most they directly interact with people is one by waking Yongari up, and two by saying another monster. This could have been easily fixed. You could cut the aliens out and just have the two monsters be summoned by each other's presence. Mm. Um, archaeologist lady's accent keeps fluctuating between some American thing and something British. It's less consistent yep. than Newt in Aliens. 
Um, it, everything was written by an eight-year-old Korean boy who was raised on B-movies. You get better animation from amateurs and source filmmaker. That's all I have to say. Oh, yeah, the jetpack scenes was just obviously standing in front of a green screen. Maybe they make them lean against a wall or something. You can see where their feet are planted. Yeah, no, there's this one shot where you can see a guy who's clearly being held up by a wire, but he's got his foot braced against the uh, the, the green screen <laughs> behind him. Again, I would like to reiterate, $13.5 million. It's not even an interesting backstory. It's not like, you know, misuse of funds or... Um, embezzling no. or funneling it to anything. No, it's just it's an expensive flop that only had a continued existence in bargain bin DVD rockets. It was just. Yonkery doesn't even look like Yonkery in it. Oh, no, it's. <laughs> Actually, this goes back to what I said about Godzilla 98. It uses the name of an existing property to kind of drum up some support. But for this, it's something that no one cares about. It's just a completely obscure blip. Unless it's like some sort of tradition in Korea. Like how The Wizard of Oz is always shown on Christmas Day. Maybe there is a holiday where people gather around the television and watch Yongari 1967. That's like their jam, and they were so hyped to have this remake. And maybe there is that. Maybe um, people are against the new Young Gary, calling it Yino Young Gary in name only. Go to hell! I was I, I had that joke lined up. I was going to make. <laughs> and instead anyway, of calling uh, it like Zilla, the... it's called Gary. <laughs> <laughs> he took the Gary out of Yonkery. <laughs> oh no, he said took the Yong. What he took was the it? Yong yeah, out, out of Yonkery. It's <laughs> just Gary. Uh, look, he, I want to go back to something else you said because that's infinitely more interesting than any of these movies. Why do people watch um, Wizard of Oz on Christmas? It's not a particularly Christmassy movie. Oh, this place in the least Christmassy place on Earth, Kansas. I think it just has something to do with it being cheap to broadcast and so it aired once uh, i think it was during the 50s it aired on television on christmas day and it just became so popular that it well, is it christmas or new year's sometime around that period it just became it became it just became a tradition you don't need to explain why these things happen they just do it's some nice natural thing and it's wonderful it's just odd i, I like it wizard of oz is a great film guess that makes sense. I suppose a lot of um, TV stations in the US would have broadcast rights to it in their particular regions. Ah, not that I, that has anything to do with our particular podcast. I was just much more interested in getting to the bottom of that than I was with progressing with the actual episode. I'd rather we do a Wizard of Oz oh. episode than yes. do anything else yes, related please. to Gary. Oh, we could do um, we could do Return to Us as well. Do a double oh feature. yeah, I forgot they did those. Oh, do you remember the... Um, Oh, oh, um, James Franco one, um, Oz the Great and Powerful. I vaguely recall it from seeing posters, but the problem with those films is there is n nothing after the initial broadcast and stuff. It is just, okay, it screens great. I mean... Sam Raimi directed it. Really? Apparently there were two yeah. Maleficent films as well. Those just went under the radar. It's like, okay, oh, great, we've got yeah, our own yeah. Disney films, but... Just, yeah, I saw hype for the first Maleficent, but nothing for the second one. Wow. I, I really don't like the sound of the Maleficent movie. I like Maleficent as a, a big evil baddie. She's she's fun like that, but they try to turn her into some kind of wooby 
um woe is me i'm not really bad kind of thing I, no she she's some unknowable dark fae yes she shouldn't be typically evil but she shouldn't be good or misunderstood either she should be unknowable she's not human she's she's fae the whole reason she was um the antagonist in sleeping beauty was just because she wasn't invited to the um to that particular shindig at the start of it i'd really don't like sleeping beauty but i would much rather watch it than any of these movies we meant to be talking about right now it's okay because once i eventually get to reschedule my disney world holiday i am taking you on a wonderful tour of walt disney's entire um film collection i guess including song of the south we already did that i know there is no escaping from uncle remus's wrath Hey, look, I'll, I'll do anything as long as we can watch Flight of the Navigator again. I like that oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think in, it's either in Anaheim or Orlando. Someone can probably correct me on this. But one of the ships used in that is um, now used as a prop in, I think it's like a, a drink shop or something. Just above there, That's three right. painted red. Something just because I think it's amusing and I want this this episode to have something amusing in it. Can I confess something mildly embarrassing? Oh, dear. Go on. I didn't know until recently that Anaheim was an actual place. <laughs> I, I'm a massive fan of Gundam, and there is a company in Gundam called Anaheim Electronics that, after the first series, make all of the, or most of the mobile suits for both sides of any given conflict and are war profiteering and are pretty much the actual antagonists, the other bad guys of the entire series. Um, but I just assumed that it was some kind of Gundam thing or some reference to Norse mythology on account of the Heim. No, actually, that sounds but, like no, the Disney of that... Mecha companies. <laughs> but no, it just turns out that Anaheim is an actual real place. It's, it exists so, in the yeah. hearts of all children. <laughs> with cheap tracts of <laughs> land actually... and giant car parks where you can build California Adventure then retheme everything there's, after there's Pixar. Actually a mechanic place called Anaheim Electronics in Anaheim. And if you if you if you Google it and you check out their Google reviews, it's all <laughs> Gundam references. Oh my god. Oh boy, what was this episode meant to be about again? Um we're supposed to be talking about Korea, but we keep on careening to the West. Shut up. I hate that. Stop it. So we've discussed Gary. We've um, gotten that pile of Gary Poo out of the way. Um, Are we talking, going to be talking about the original OG Yon Gary? Do you think you have enough hype and motivation or you want to have a bit of fun with Paul Gasari? I want to save Paul Gasari for last. Let's do original Yon Gary. (laughs) Okay. The the original Yon Gary is a Godzilla knockoff. There is nothing else to define it other than that, and it's not even a very good Godzilla knockoff. I would much rather watch Gorgo than this. Burn. That's the review. Goodbye, everyone. Well, that that being said, both Gorgo and Yongari were riffed on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. That's how we could actually watch uh, the old version. It was it was all yes, right because I'd be damned if I'm paying for it. It's so boring. Right off the bat, here, I know we're going to talk about Yongari a little in a bit more detail, but the only thing I can remember that makes the film unique is the death scene where you see him bleeding out of his ass. That's all I remember. They've got actual blood coming from a kaiju. It's just dead in the pool. There's a kid crying. And I'm thinking, that's some very odd blood placement. His anus is bleeding. I really didn't like the climax of that movie because right at the end, they try to shoehorn in a whole kind of, when will man learn? He, he only wanted to, to live. 
He only wanted to drain all of our energy resources to eat. No, no, you mispronounced it. If Dr. Wiley has taught... Sorry, if Dr. Light has taught me anything, it's energy resources. So, <laughs> Mega Man 8 reference. I, I don't have a speech impediment. Please play Mega Man 8. It's horrible. Dr. Wowie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... Oh, no. It's just a series also, of... the child's name is Itcho. And he makes people itch because his... What is it? His uncle? His, his older brother? His... Oh, no, it's his... A... It's his... Older sister's boyfriend. Just... Older sister's boyfriend has a itchy torch that he leaves lying around. His See, name is Itchy. I... Now, let, let, uh, to be just to clarify, we watched the English dub. Whether that kid's name is Itcho in the original version or if it was just a dub edition, I don't know. I don't care enough about this film to find out. But that's what I was presented with. The film starts out like any other Tokusatsu film. I mean... Okay, this sounds a little bit strange, but if you show this to anyone, they think, oh, it's it's just another Japanese monster movie. Except for maybe, like, the racist. clothing. <laughs> a little bit racist. Oh, 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 hush, hush. We, we clocked onto the same exact goddamn thing. Oh, no, yeah, with, notes, with the women wearing the traditional yeah, Korean dress. Yes. Yeah, no, I... I one of the one of the only good things I, I put in my notes about this film was that it's nice seeing um, Korean fashion for a change because I'm so used to Japanese by this point. Oh yeah, um, yeah, th- th- it's really neat. Um, the the style of dresses is quite nice. I like it, um, and it was nice seeing it extensively throughout the film. Yeah. So that's a point in Yonkiri One's favor. Yeah, they have pretty dresses. They gave me pretty dresses to look at. Um, yeah, otherwise it starts out like any other. Um, film, you know, it's it starts out completely unrelated to the monster. It's like, okay, here's a married couple, here's a scientist brother who is way too hardworking. Why do they get married at the space centre? That's why I'd like to get married. Gets married. Yeah, but we don't work there. He works there. I work in a mini-golf place. I will die before I get married at a mini-golf course. You know what, if... Yeah, I've, I'm going to have to... If you, once you have a fiance, even once you've moved on from the mini golf course, you're going to get married there. It will have to be some sort See, of blood oath. It will have to be a bet. I, you are going to get. It doesn't need to be that one. It will be in a certain mini golf place. And I, I'd, I'd yeah. be angry with you if you didn't display so much faith in me by assuming I'll get married. So thank you. Oh, you're trying to beat the system now. I'm going to get you one of those mail order brides. Look, I'll take what I can get at this point. <laughs> Olga will do. Olga will do just fine. Now, where the heck was I? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it starts out something like that. And also the married guy is an astronaut. And he's called on some important space mission that actually isn't pertinent to anything other than him yeah, having to land it a capsule. Space. And it, it, it's completely unrelated. It has nothing to do... With him, he could be a jet fighter pilot. He, he could he could fly high altitude planes for all the impact it makes on this story. I was thinking that while I was watching it. At no point does space play into this at all. Space is more relevant in this in the remake than this. The scientist side character was the only one who actually had any agency, except for the annoying child who you know was like, "Oh look, he's eating fuel and things that go hot. Therefore, we have to do cold things to fight the monster." 
Uh, but it, it just starts out like your standard schlocky 60s Toku thing. It's just a lot of humans doing stuff. Takes a while to actually introduce the monster. You got earthquakes and then boom, monster. Someone mentions offhand like, oh, it, this reminds me of the legend of Yongari. And that has more importance to the plot than it did for <laughs> Gary. Because seriously... It's like okay, let's let's name this after a mythological monster, and that's that's all that's all the meaning it needs. But for this, but with Gary, it's like okay, it's an ancient alien plot or something from millions of years ago to raise a dinosaur. How the hell would that have passed into folklore? Like that's just it wouldn't oh, horrible. It absolutely wouldn't. Although an interesting thing that links all three movies is that the monsters in-universe are actually from folklore. Um, Yongari is, in both films, either a mythological creature or an ancient thing spoken of in prophecies. In Pulgasari, it was some kind of folk creature as well. Oh, I think it was called the Pulgasari, yeah. I vaguely recall seeing that on the Wikipedia page. You know, I, I, I do all my research extremely well. Ah, like I said, we're not professionals. We're just, we just, we do this to have fun. This episode is significantly less fun. You think we had fun? Yeah, we, no, we suffered for our art. We, we're such masochists that eventually we'll turn this into latex power armor and we'll descend into pure filth. Yeah, may as well. I'll get suited up. The safe word is henshin. <laughs> oh my! Oh, what's next? Younger, younger, younger. Oh yeah, they mentioned the Middle East. Are conducting nuclear tests and this is something that bothered me because at no point okay so it's heavily implied i think because i wasn't really paying much attention because it was really boring that the nuke tests awake neongari yeah i think However, that was what was the implied nuke, if the nuke tests if the nuke tests were in the middle east the middle east is a significant distance away from south oh. korea now now i was wondering if in the original south korean yeah the non-dubbed version if there was North Korea that was doing nuke tests <laughs> at this point, and they just edited it out for the dub, I do not know. I am not interested enough to find out. If anyone knows, let us know in the comment comments. Rather, I'm just not interested enough to find out on my own. Well, it, the Middle East is far away enough for it to be not radiation doing anything, but shockwaves. You know, because nukes I, are pretty big. They can send shockwaves, you can sense them from the other side of the world, There's all this stuff. So, yeah, if they had a scene of, like, a seismometer going off or something. It just seems a bit arbitrary. Just something to say, since oh, the, wow, all these since tests. the Middle East weren't known for nukes in the 60s. You know who was known for nukes in the 60s? America. Well, Russia was pretty big on that thing, and they did quite a few oh, proxy wars in the Middle East. I forgot the Clone War. Oh, no, I just almost called the... The Cold War, the Clone War. <laughs> 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 oh, pop culture's poisoned my mind. That Whoa. would have made the 60s so much better. <sighs> What's this anti-droid McCarthyism? <laughs> oh, what, you, you've got um, Richard Nixon. Maru, begun, the Clone Wars have. <laughs> I only I only used Nixon because that's the only US president I could do it. And you, you didn't even and do realistic Nixon. You did Billy West it's Nixon. It's only the future armor one. <laughs> <laughs> it's now just moved into common knowledge that he goes aru. Did I tell you the backstory for that? Why Billy West decided oh, to did, have did, Nixon did, say that? Is it because he thought he was a werewolf or, or thought he seemed like one? 
Yeah, so when uh, Billy was a kid, um, he was watching... Would you call him Billy the Kid? <laughs> Billy the West the Kid. Saban's Billy the West the Kid. He was watching um, the debates between Nixon and JFK. And on the one hand, you had, you know, John F. Kennedy, this wonderfully handsome man who was charismatic and seemed to have control of the situation versus Nixon, who seemed disheveled and slightly unshaven and didn't really seem to have the same attraction factor. And what he used to do was, you know, go to his mum and say, look, mummy's going to turn into a werewolf. (laughs) And so all that came from an in-joke he had as a kid. I always thought it was how he... um got himself into that particular role with the jowls. You know, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's also a good one, yeah. That's what I assumed, but it, the werewolf thing makes it so much funnier. Billy West can only do three voices. Can. It's variant on his own voice, which is not used in Fry and stuff, um, a Richard Nixon impression, or middle-aged Jewish man, which he used in Ren and Stimpy and Futurama. This is so much more entertaining and enjoyable for me than talking about Yongari. Oh yeah, we're still talking about uh, Yongari. I still need to fix that tangent yeah, alarm. We're, we're still we're still doing the podcast and not just chatting as friends. Oh boy. Yeah, actually one thing. The characters in the first Yongari are way better than any other characters in the other two films. The bar has not been set particularly high. But this film includes a child called Itcho who makes people itch multiple times. That's that's all you have to do. Well, yes, he also sees young Gary flailing about and assumes he's dancing and thinks he's a good person. When, no, hang on, that thing was just attacking everything. Um, I, I don't know what the moral is. Is the moral that man should stop protecting their oil reserves? Man should stop... No, it's, it's when will man learn. Learn what?! When will man learn? <laughs> it doesn't matter what we learn, as long as we learn it. Um, yeah, very well. Um, I'll try to learn... Oh! <laughs> I was gazing thoughtfully into my mug of coffee when I was trying to think of something clever to say, only to realise it wasn't empty, so I ended up spilling coffee down my leg. Mmm, cold coffee. I'm wearing shorts when and will man my learn? legs. When will man learn to finish his coffee before tipping it over? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate this movie so much, and I will never watch this one again either. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something important to say about Young Guy. I didn't take notes on this one because it just seemed well, I've, like I've such got a, a decent amount of notes. It was a by the numbers kaiju flick from the 60s. Um, oh, oh, hang yeah. about. So, in the first act, they introduce a gun that makes one itch. In the third act, they bring it back. I've therefore dubbed this trope Chekhov's itching gun. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, this film does not inspire any enthusiasm for me at all. This seemed like such a good idea when I thought of it. Oh, yeah. Ooh, we've got North Korean movie monster movies, and we've got South Korean monster movies. Let's watch them all. And do a video on them. Yeah. Oh, um, they use really horrible Dutch angles when they're evacuating the city. Only in that scene. And it doesn't work at all. I hate Dutch angles. Tripods should not allow one to do that to a camera. We need to do Battlefield Earth in that case. Oh, no. I've not watched that movie. I don't have any desire to do so. 
Oh, come doesn't, on. Um, doesn't John Travolta wear massive platform boots in that? Yeah, he has to be seven feet tall. Ooh, so it's not even like a Tom Cruise thing. He just has to wear them. Yep. And I, I, I swear to this day, he's still wearing them. There is one, not so much in Pulgasari, because the uh, the monster action is pretty important to the plot in that one. Uh, but in the two Yongari films, there is such a disconnect between plot threads that I can it just my gold standard for monster movies is the original Godzilla. That is not a very original thing to say, I know, but that's how I feel. It is a really good movie. It is absolutely masterful. It is one of the best monster movies and one of my personal favorite movies of all time. And the way that the human drama and the monster action are woven together, I think it works really well. They are both important to driving the plot forwards. Not so much with Yongari, especially the re- the remake one. It's just in- incompetence is the word of today, kids. Incompetence, and it doesn't even have any charm to it to make me think, oh yeah, this movie's kind of crappy. But, but, but damn it, did they try? The special effects weren't that great either. So you know how um, there are a few scenes of Yongari eating fire and burning fuel and stuff. Uh, hey, look. Actually, I want to I want to be nice, so I'm going to spend this little segment being nice. I actually kind of liked that shot. It's very easy to please me, and I like seeing fire in reverse for some reason. It, it's fun. They just reversed it coming yeah, out of a flamethrower, and they didn't even I, I know, make an I know, effort. I know, I like it. I, they, I know. They didn't my conceal brain, like, the little flamethrower tube either, and you could tell it was an empty suit. My primitive monkey brain liked it. I liked the earthquake bit with the earth splitting apart. It's not the best, but I like it. I, I really like miniature stuff and special effects like that. Some of the special effects, well, none of the special effects are great. Some of them are fine. And the ones that are fine shone through so much because of the context that they were in that I enjoyed them. There's an incredibly backhanded compliment, I know, but that's the best I can do. I'm trying to be nice. I don't enjoy being down on stuff because I love films and I love tokusatsu and monster films most of all and having to be mean and dispassionate and dismissive about any of them actually upsets me a little bit which is why I'm it it, it makes like a catch-22 a vicious cycle whatever phrase I'm trying to use there it makes it less fun for me he doesn't hate you young Gary he hates what he became because of you yeah, you made me do this, Yongari. When will you learn? <laughs> when will Yongari learn? <laughs> when will Korea learn? See, kids, we call that one a brick joke. <laughs> so, now we move on to a more exciting part of uh, our episode, which is Porgasari, North Korea's contribution to Tokusatsu, heavily inspired by 1985's The Return of Godzilla, and... Heavily. Very, very heavily, to the extent that I only realised how heavily it was when I saw close-ups of Paul Gasari's face. They had a separate model that had facial animation. They could move the eyes, they could move the brow. Yeah, it was competently made because they got special (laughs) effects people in from Japan. They lured them in thinking, oh, we're going to be doing some shooting in China. Nope, welcome to North Korea. Now toil. Oh, good grief. You know, it, it starts off with the um, the logo of 
North Korea's film company, and they've got like a knockoff Mount Fuji in the background of it, and that really just sets isn't that for me. Mount Peg Two? I don't care enough about North Korea geography to know Mount Peg too it's like it's like really important symbolism for them and it had um, a statue I think it was um, Cholima the winged horse you call yourself a Kariaboo ew I don't like K-pop yeah I'm not a <laughs> subhuman have you oh, seen the about. footage of um, I shouldn't say that people sh- have you seen the footage of people showing um, K-pop stuff to North Koreans <laughs> I was watching that the other day <laughs> oh oh what a horrible place yeah. The one thing that continuously sticks out to me about this film is that it looks like it was made in the 60s. Now, granted, I thought it was in the 60s. I was at a party Pogisari yesterday suit, talking about it. The suit it would be too advanced for the 60s or be very expensive in the 60s, but the picture quality, the makeup, the acting quality, everything else about it screams 60s to me. And it was made in 1985. I was surprised it was the 80s. It was nuts. Ah, so with regard to this, this is interesting because as compared to Yongari and Gary, this isn't anything related to sci-fi. It's fantasy, which is Ooh, quite yeah. cool because you don't get many fantasy kaiju films, do you? No, you don't. And this gives Pulgasari kind of its own uh, identity, which helped it stand apart from most other uh, tokusatsu and kaiju uh, flicks, especially of the era. Um, so that that was kind of th- the only one I was looking forward to watching out of all of these was Porgasari. Because one thing I really want to watch is more period tokusatsu. I really like the idea of that, and Yongari is probably one of the only things that lets me do that. Unfortunately, anything around everything else around that core concept is just not great on account of the fact that it was made in North Korea. The film starts set in a small village, I think. What sort of period are we thinking about? It's I'm not I, too aware of Korean timelines. I have no idea. They use a ballista, but then they've been they were using ballistas. From well, that's more like a sort of a Hawasha thing because they use um they have it like rocket propelled. Um, I, I'm so just reading that, it now. It's feudal Korea word? during the Goryeo di- dynasty. Was, it, was that a word you said or was that a cough? I I don't know at this point. What was I talking about? Um. Feudal Korea, Goryeo Dynasty. Oh, wait, so no, Watcher. Yeah, yeah, it's like so um, like an old school missile launcher. Yeah. So, what um, if fireworks fe- could kill you? Is the whole premise of that weapon? So you, you said feudal Korea. What what kind of year roughly are we talking? Like what kind of time span? What does Wikipedia say? Um, let's see. Sometime between nine hundred eighteen. AD and 1392. I'm going to go with the 1300s. It looks more 1300s-ish. And I know because I've been yeah. playing Ghost of Tsushima and that's really fun. I love that game so much. <laughs> yeah. Please, tell me about Ghost of Tsushima. <laughs> I, haven't they released a free samurai. multiplayer mode for it? Not that I've played yet, but I'm I'm, I'm damn interested in it. I, I, I really love this game. I, um, I've unlocked the... Uh, ancestral clan armor of the main character and the first thing i did was check the armor dies you can get for it and one of them is gold so i'm going around in king Ghidorah samurai armor now. oh nice oh it looks so good i got uh, a white horse and gave it like golden um saddles and stuff like that before this so i'm going around on a you know, golden gilded horse with golden Ghidorah armor it's fantastic that makes uh, the stealth gameplay seem a lot 
Well, the stealth gameplay is only in it so they can continually guilt the main character for committing acts unbecoming of a samurai. Even though, historically speaking, ninjas weren't actually a separate class of warriors. They were just samurai doing other things. It was like covert ops, but with samurai. That's right, cool. ninjas didn't exist. So, we're uh, going from Japan back to um, the glorious kingdom of North Korea. Um, this film starts in, you know, a cute little 13th century village. There's, there's the, the blacksmith, an old guy who's got all his apprentices and stuff. And the government is corrupt as hell to the extent that they appear to the village and demand that more weapons be made I... to fight the bandits. Can I interrupt here with one of my uh, one of the things I made in my notes? I, Go I on. find it incredibly amusing and a little bit ironic that the government shown to us here is abusive, authoritarian, <laughs> and corrupt, and demanding everything that the citizen yeah. has. That, true, um, yeah. It's um, a little more representative of uh, the North Korean government to the extent that the government came in and were like, okay, yeah, I mean, you mentioned there's no iron to make weapons to fight stuff. No, we're going to take all your tools or your cooking pots, everything you use for farming to subsist on. Yeah, just, we're just going to melt them all down. It, I, it, it took me longer than it probably should have to realise what was going on. Uh, I think they're doing that because they want to demonise their past so that no one can look back on the halcyon days of yore and long for a day before dear leader you know um china did something yeah. similar in recent years they banned time travel stories which are becoming rather popular because it was all about people escaping to a simpler time before the chinese government <laughs> wow wow indeed. um so yeah um as an overall kind of thing, this is a story that's very ancient. So it's a, uh, a farmer's militia revolting against a corrupt king. And it's all right, really. But the fantasy aspect is what makes it unique. Um, mm. Because after the government take all of their tools and stuff, the old blacksmith steals them back and hides them. And when the governor demands to know where the tools are. He said, no, no, Paul Gasari took it, um, hinting at some sort of mythical creature. And they're like, no, no, come on, that doesn't exist. And so they lock him in a cell with no food or water. And all the young men that they uh, arrested in the village are there as well. They're on hunger strike and stuff. And it's getting to the extent that the blacksmith's um, two children, I have a list of their names here, I don't know why you're doing that much effort. In, in fact, yeah. that's something I also made a note of. Everyone in this village refers to each other as brother, sister, uncle, aunt. I, it makes uh, it really I think hard. It's cultural. I know. I, I figured partway through, but for the first half hour, I thought that the two, um, that the yeah the main guy who gets executed or is tried. They attempt to execute. They were cousins, and they were arranged to be married. Oh, right. I, I yes. thought they were going for a weird incest thing there, which would be pretty okay, period so, accurate, um, going, but weird. Going back to it, the blacksmith's uh, two children, oh, but I want to talk about uh, the male again. Anna and his uh, older sister, Ami, um, they end up throwing um, balls of rice through the window you know, just so he can actually get something to eat. And yeah, um, we, now this is a, quite a common the, thing. Uh, and this is quite a common thing in the film 
in that the blacksmith, using his last little bit of energy, um, sacrifices himself, says a prayer to God, and creates this little effigy of Pulgasari. And <laughs> this is where your first thoughts came in about it, as to thinking what exactly it was made of. I thought it was made of rice, but you've got a little more of an interesting insight, haven't you? Well, yes, I agree that the main component of this effigy was rice. However, to mould rice, one needs a, you know, in such a complex shape, one needs a binding agent. Uh, binding agents aren't so common in prison. All one has is the uh, the elements one goes in with. Like poop. He made that, <laughs> he made that golem out of rice and poop. I have two counterpoints to that. One, yes, but I shall reject them both. You can boil rice and, you know, you know, just use some water. It just sort of gets soaked together. It's already bound. And two, the man didn't have anything to eat. He was starved. He wouldn't have been able to produce poop unless he unless they were, like, giving him poop. Uh, counter Counterpoint. Pulgasari starts out brown. <laughs> brown rices. Shut up. It's better for you. You get your fiber in. So, yeah, the headcanon here is that Pulgasari is a rice and poop homunculus. <laughs> and, yeah, on the night that he creates it, he dies, and you see this little tiny effigy little doll thing in his belongings. And, what, the day after, Ami then stabs herself with a sewing needle, causing her blood to inadvertently just trickle onto it. And then it, it comes to life and starts Pulgasari's eating anything made of metal. He's awoken by blood. He's a demon. Well, actually, um, some of it is a little up to the interpretation because later on in the film, they try to um, render him inactive by getting a priestess to kind of exercise the blacksmith's spirit. So he's kind of put his a bit of his soul into it. Uh, true, but it doesn't properly work, though. It staggers him. See, So I always just assume that it is some kind of horrible fell demon and that the spell of exorcism only kind of half worked because... Any kind of exorcism will probably affect a demon somehow. If, if it Didn't was, she pour actually, more blood but... on him. Yeah, oh, mate, um, I didn't care enough to, you know. I was flicking through my phone partway through. It's Pulgasari. <laughs> if it was something I genuinely liked and had proper significance, like Mothra, then yeah, I'd be on the edge of my seat because I love that film. Pulgasari on the other hand. Tell you what, actually, the uh, when when Pulgasari is a little, but a wee golem, uh, it reminded me a bit of the old fifties Tom Thumb movie, because that made extensive use of bigger sets for a little man. Oh yeah, with the uh, force well, perspective kind of thing. Oh, for a second there, I thought you actually seen that film. I, the only person I've found who has seen that weird film is me. Ah, do you discuss it with yourself in the mirror often? Someone has to. But yeah, by this point in the film, so the people of the village are heavily affected. A lot of uh, the men in the village are arrested as bandits because they were kind of rebelling a little bit. Only the tiny bit of rebelling. And when the main guy who was supposed to be uh, wed to Ami um, is about to get executed, Pulgasari just leaps out of nowhere, eats the sword, attacks the executioner, and it causes like a little... Um, what's the term? Kerfuffle. So things get really <laughs> spirited. They start to rebel more. Then Pulgasari's kicked out of the village for a while because he's been eating everyone's tools. A prelude to the ending of the film, actually. But um, uh, we'll have to touch on that. Yeah, um, you know, competent they filmmaking. Tried. 
That that's what happens when you only kidnap the best. Uh, didn't they get Haro and Akajima to play Pulgasari? No, was they it, didn't. Um, was ooh, it Kenpachi or something? Got his name. Tatsuma. I'm going to scroll through me notes. His name was. Was it Satsuma? Yeah, it was Satsuma. Uh, yeah. Kenpachiro Satsuma. So, just a brief aside, since it's relevant, Satsuma said that he preferred Pulgasari to the 1998 Godzilla film. This is a man who was kidnapped into taking part in this film. <laughs> well, there's one glowing endorsement. Now, did he say that while he was still in North Korea, or or when he was safely in Japan? Oh, it's a darnest thing. There were a couple of armed guards behind him when he said it. Who would have thought? Oh, but know, he but that guaranteed that that was completely of his own free will. Yeah, he signed it. He was blinking in a funny pattern, though. Ah, well, yeah, but there's probably a lot of dust there, you know. Oh, sorry, not dust. Yeah, um, um, it, it looked a little bit like because they're so prosperous. <laughs> but then at that point, Pulgasari is taken away from it for a tiny bit, and you then cut to footage of the king being like, how do we stop these bandits? Uh, because now it's a proper peasant militia, and they get a general in who's going to attack them, and um, they the militia go off to the mountains, and they just go Endor all over the army's ass. You I see really this like nice little fight outfit. scene... Yeah, it looks competently done. They have, like, falling rock traps, logs and stuff. And I can totally see um, how that can be a rather nice part of the film. You've got the underdogs winning and stuff. And then the general is like, okay, we'll surround this mountain they're hiding in. They didn't have time to pack food. And it cuts to the usual stuff of the militia having to kill their own animals, eating tree bark. Until um, Pulgasari finally reappears after eating a bunch of metal, now the size of a man. And people realise, oh, hang on, we can actually use him to fight it. Then it cuts to a bit of a battle scene where they stick him at the front as a sort of vanguard, and the enemy just legs it, and they just keep on feeding him the enemy's weapons, and he just grows to the size of a kaiju, and I think that is really, really cool. Because, realistically, if that happened, that would be perfect psychological warfare. Yeah. Well, again, they, they did just, something yeah. different. They did, they did something and it, it, it shocks me mm. that Pulgasari is the one that tried something and thought a little bit, at least, outside of the box. It was creatively done. And it was that part I enjoyed, because then it had um, the various attempts by the general to try and subdue the monster. Like They couldn't. They initially tried to destroy it by... They, saw, they sort of knew that it was bound to Ami, and so I, they kidnapped they her and yeah, attempted to uh, control Pulgasari to get him to walk into this giant wooden cage, then burn him. And, uh, yeah, it turns out that didn't kill him, only made him angry. Um, he attacked the army, they ran into the river. He stepped into the river, boiled everyone alive, because he was still very hot. Um, it was pretty cool. There are other attempts were just dig him in a big hole, get the ghost out of him. Genuinely serious attempts to stop a monster. It's not like, oh, we can't necessarily kill him anymore. Although I think they did celebrate a lot when they managed to get like a Huacha um, projectile in his eye. He just pulled it out and just kept on wrecking I, I stuff. I really like these medieval period um, attempts to deal with a kaiju. It, it's something that yeah. I don't see very often. I'm, I'm sick of seeing maser lasers and modern day guided missiles. I like seeing spears and fireworks and pits and cannons yeah. being employed against something like that. 
there's a big ancient cannon that's involved at the end of the film, and it it's just impressive. You can kind of see how they're struggling to hold back the monster, and it's just it's quite a cool thing. And okay, <clears throat> I'm not sure which tangent to go for this. So of course you you see Pulgasari eventually destroy the palace and kill the evil king, and then everyone's celebrating. And then they sort of realise that he still keeps eating. He eats the cannon that was used against him, and then he starts eating the tools um, that the peasants were using, um, which kind of was initially what the evil government were doing in the beginning. They're taking their own their own people's resources for their own means, and Pulgasari's doing the same thing, and Ami sort of realises that the only way to keep it satisfied would be to attack other countries, to take their resources. And I think that's where they were trying to get some sort of metaphor for rampant capitalism or Western influence. Mm. Um, and so what she does is she traps, she hides in a bell and rings it to attract Pulgasari to eat it, and by killing her, it causes him to die. Which is, is kind of cool, really, because there's this air of sacrifice that always goes on in these films. Yeah, it's that, that is something that everyone kind of picked up on. But another thing that I think both you and I picked up on, and it turns out when I was reading about um, the film, a lot of other people believe as well, is that the director slipped in his own kind of subversive message where this that very same thing that you described could then be inversely applied to the Kim dynasty where it was a um, you know the, the what's the party called the DPRK the Democratic People's Republic of Korea um, rose up uh, you know promising to make all people equal in this, this this proud democratic nation and then they're all turned into slaves as I find it rather neat that two polar opposite messages could be taken from the exact same story by people from different cultures so people you know if you lived in korea if you bombarded with this kind of propaganda all your life no doubt you would take the intended what what what, what kim jong-il would have intended the message to be but anyone outside of that would have read something completely different into it they'd have seen the irony mm. again this is one of the one of the reasons why i like paul Gasari over the other two it's not necessarily a more competent film, although no, no, from a technical point of view, that is that's wrong. It is it is a more competent film, but it's it's the fact that there is more you can talk about with it. The plot isn't particularly complex, but there is more that can be talked about through the moral, the ethical, the yeah, the, the implications of the story, what it could mean, and the production, you know, the backstory behind the whole thing. I like how it's a really good example of um, the conventions in North Korean films. Now, um, so through the entire film, you know all the male characters who had names? Mm -hmm. They didn't make it to the end of the film, did they? They all sacrificed themselves. They weren't the hero. Yes. They weren't the protagonist. If we had any character who was a protagonist, it was Ami, the woman, and she also sacrificed herself. So the main theme typically is giving up your own... Um, needs in the face of a more collectivist approach that's one and so you know all the men sort of show their dedication to the cause by doing everything to the death being very keen on everything but none of the men are the main character and that's true in nearly every north korean film the main character is always a woman because if 
well, this goes back to Hollywood, how people would idolize um, the male protagonist. So you'd be like, oh, hey, it's Marlon Brando in Rebel Without a Cause. People would be like, I want to be like him. He's cool. And... Yeah, I want to be more like, uh, more like Marlon Brando in Island of Dr. Morrow. That's what I aspire to be. I want to be like the guy from Speed. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I'm, I'm well on the way to becoming Island of Dr. Moreau, Marlon Brando. I've put on the weight. All I need is a little guy. I've got the... yeah With this summer, if it goes any hotter, I'm going to grab myself a bucket of ice and tie it to my head as well. <clears throat> Sorry, give me a sec. <laughs> if this summer gets any hotter, uh, yeah. I'm going to tie a bucket of ice onto my head as well. In the context of North Korean cinema, you can't really have a male protagonist that people could potentially idolize because that would detract from dear leader that would be against kim jong-il jong-un or il it's il sung was the first one wasn't he kim il sung kim jong-il kim jong-un i think it is jong-un yeah okay um yeah so even in other films um they are not represented because they're seen as something divine. If anything, the camera would focus on a phone and someone would take an important call from Dear Leader, awaiting their um, sage response. But there would be no man who comes up with a genius idea because that would mean that they would be in competition with Dear Leader. But if they have a strong female character, that's fine because she can be industrious. She can be the one who's charismatic because there's no competition. Because I know gender roles and all that stuff, but it serves the state well because they don't really need to have them be less of a character. With men, they are either bumbling and inept, or if they are, you know, protagonists, if they are good, then they sacrifice themselves. They do what they can in service of the state. They are not the hero on the poster. Every single thing you've just said is absolutely disgusting to me. No part of it has any merit whatsoever. North Korea did fake woke before it was cool. I don't think this film even passes the Bechdel test if we're talking about that kind of thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's see. Did she talk about... I'm pretty she sure... She didn't really talk to any, any other women, but she did the... talk to Pulgasari a few times. The only other woman I think that the main character spoke to was about so was was about a man not in a romantic context but just in the context oh oh the, the men folk have been kidnapped by by the king i'm pretty sure oh yeah so that doesn't pass the bechdel test they have to both be named and have to talk about something other than a man of course the bechdel test was intended as a joke from the outset anyway yeah, still a fascinating um, way of measuring the writing of female characters and stuff yeah, the point of the Bechdel test was to show that if you if you measure it by such an arbitrary measure, then you're not going to enjoy most things. I did enjoy Pulgasari. I really liked how it well it was competently made. Yes, because they use slave labor. Um, we can joke about this, but we we acknowledge that it is. I mean, what happened in North Korea was absolutely horrible. Those people we did can... not deserve that kind of fate. Dunking on this movie is all fun and games but it is the product of slave labor and is nothing but a monument to one man's pettiness and his ego kim jong-il wanted a godzilla movie and by god he got one but it was at the expense of the liberty of what must be hundreds of other people yeah um it wow this film is 
it's a very bizarre product of its time. Mm. It was when North Korean propaganda was just really all up in it, and it's fascinating. I enjoyed the film more than Young Gary or Gary, and yes. it, it it's just it's got some very unique aspects to it. It's a period yeah. drama. It's a fantasy with a kaiju in it. It's got a fairly competently done kaiju suit. It it just it is almost a decentish film, but it it's also just some cheesy, the... schlocky yeah. B movie. If it weren't for the slave labor thing, I would be a lot more positive about it, but you know, it's kind of hard to get over the fact that it was created by the son of a despotic dictator who then became a despotic dictator. Uh, it, yeah. One one thing about it, though, it, so at this time, uh, Kim Jong-il was a a massive um, cinephile. Apparently, he had like a reported library of 15,000 films. Wow. Um, so he was in charge of the um, film production in that country. I mean, every film they make is propaganda, so... Um, he really wanted to to make a monster movie, and yeah, this is around the time when he kidnapped um, the director and his ex-wife, all that junk. Um, flew in a crew that had worked on Godzilla movies under the pretense of them landing in China. They didn't. They landed in North Korea. Um, but one thing he noted, which is why he kidnapped um, outsiders for it, was that his own film crew. His, his, his cast, at the very least, delivered very stiff and wooden and unenthusiastic performances. And his reasoning for why that might be is that the state was going to pay them anyway, no matter what kind of performance they gave in. And that the, um, uh, the, the, casting, the cast and the crew from you know, South Korea and outside of North Korea gave better performances with their roles because they had to work to earn pay. And so this this communist member, high-ranking member of the Communist Party of North Korea, had to recognize the merits of capitalism over his own system of government. I don't okay, understand. Okay, I can I can appreciate that irony. Oh, it is incredibly ironic. And if it didn't involve real human beings, I would find it very funny. I just find it incredibly sad that this guy can see the chinks in the system that he has contributed to and perpetuated himself and didn't do anything about it except perpetuate it. Hmm. Although um, Shin Sang-ok and Choi Yun-hee did actually manage to escape, didn't they? They had a bit yes. of a, a happy ending. It was, well, because... Okay, so Choi, she was in relative comfort during her captivity. Shin was kept in a prison camp, and the only way to survive for either of them was to pretend to be very pro-North Korea. It was the only way they knew that they could escape, and they managed to leave the country. To, well, they managed to go to Vienna for business purposes, and they escaped to the U.S. Embassy. I'm so glad they did. No one deserves to be kept in that hellhole. Yeah, and um, Jong-il was so enraged by it, by this perceived betrayal, that he censored all six <laughs> of the uh, films that he forced Shin to make. He censored them all. They are no longer available in North Korea. All this effort put into it, and it was just like, no. They just had to strip it completely. It's absolutely mental. Um, we, we've gotten a bit serious on account of the human rights violations, as we should. Um, I'd like to transition to something a bit more fun, I guess. 
there is a remake of Porgasari out there, produced by the same director. It's called Galgameth. Okay. It, yeah, it exists. I it there is a remake of Porgasari. There's a Western I'm, remake. I'm looking of at this. Yeah, oh, it's called oh my goodness! Ninety six. Yes. Yep. I really want to watch that with you. That's going to have to be its own damn episode. I'm I'm just I'm just reading the Wikipedia page and yeah, that mm. looks it looks like a westernized version of it. Yep. Uh, oh my good lordy. This feels this okay in comparison to Pulgasari, this feels so 90s. Remember when they tried to make fantasy stuff? Remember when swords and sorcery was a thing but it was always just so schlocky? You can never Willow. quite get into the mainstream with it. Well, aside from knockoff, are you Hobbit? Are you, ooh, them's fighting That's, words. Yeah, I'm using love, fighting I words, boy. I love Willow. I will slap you. I will slap Can't you slap me. I, it's lockdown. I can go to work. I can track you down. Willow is fantastic. I love Willow. I'll definitely lead, need to look into Galgameth. Um, oh, yeah. It was. It was written by. Yep. Shin Sango? Yeah. Um, man, Mr. Shin. So, he did actually do a lot of Western stuff in the 90s once he escaped. And um, one of the major ones that he managed to direct under the pseudonym uh, Simon Sheen. So, he started, um, you know, he, he was he was an accomplished director in Korea, in the South. Then he was kidnapped by the North. And then he escaped to the US to finally chase his dream of directing Three Ninjas Knuckle Up. Oh, no. Yeah, he did Wait, the uh, Three Wait, Ninjas which... sequels. It wasn't even the first Three Ninjas? No, then he was executive producer for Three Ninjas Kickback and Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain. Oh, no, the one with real Hulk things? Hogan. Yeah, Hulk Hogan was in that last one. He plays the leader of a terrorist organization that take a, um, a theme park hostage. <laughs> oh, it's about sending fun. a message, brother. <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me think of another one. Um, or perhaps, brother, he's wondering why you would shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering what would break first. <laughs> your body or your soul? If I take off that bandana, will it kill you? It'll be extremely painful, brother. You're a big guy. Oh, yeah, for you. <laughs> <laughs> what you gonna do? When a whole world of Hulkabaniacs comes for you. Hulkabaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have that kind of dub now. I'm sorry, Tom Hardy. Your your take on Bane was interesting, but it would just be better if we had uh, Hulk Hogan voice it. Hey, look, it would be just as inaccurate as Tom Hardy's version. I, we may as well have fun with it. Why can't they ever uh, make Nightfall Bane, Bane was the OG. Why can't they? Why, why don't they ever make him... He was, he, was, he was Mexican, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't they ever make him a big, hairy Mexican man? Like um, Batman uh, Batman and Robin. He, he, he could oh, barely say his no, own name. Oh, no, no. Don't even mention that. He was okay in Young Justice and Batman the Animated Series. Although he kept referring to the team in Young Justice as El Nino's. So the problem I had with some of that, like including in uh, the representation in the Batman Arkham games, it just felt a bit too much, I think too brutish, when in fact Bane yeah. is a genius. He yeah. is incredibly clever. He's a master at planning. Well, 
it's interesting you say that because Bane acknowledges that Batman is a more is too much of a physical challenge for him, which is why in his introduction in Nightfall he sets most of his other enemies against him first before facing him. He has to strategize mm. around Batman's strength. Just please give yeah. it to Bane. He played second fiddle to Talia Al Ghul of all people. I don't I don't dislike Talia. Just that particular version of Talia. Hmm. We're talking about Paul Gasari still but... Oh, we were talking about three ninjas. We got to talking about Hulk. Hogan. Three ninjas, Hulk Hogan, man. Oh, man I, seriously, when remember? when we agreed on doing this, I thought we would have been a little more enthusiastic on the subject matter, but Korean yeah, kaiju, not the best. Sadly, uh, Paul Gasari was interesting. It was an amazing little look into propaganda at the time, but I expected it's got more no other merit. Gary. Yeah. I mean, you really wanted me to watch Gary with you, and that was just so underwhelming. Yeah, I was—I hadn't watched it before that point, and I genuinely feel bad about making you watch it now. I'm—I'm I'm glad we at least watched it together. I wouldn't have gotten through it. So, out of let's let's put them into two camps. You've got Young Gary and the Return of Gary in the South Korea camp, <laughs> the Gary and uh, in in the North corner. You've got Paul Gasari. So um, if you could choose a country based on your preference... Now, keep in mind, if you go for Young Gary, you also have to suffer from K-pop. And um, if you go for Paul Gasari, you know, forced labour and famine. All hail our dear leader. Yeah, Paul Gasari. It, it's just interesting enough. The rest were just too bland. Mm. Young Gary was too much of... Uh, it was just a paint-by-numbers kaiju film, and Gary was just so just a rip-off of so many things that had no soul. Not even the one with an E in, in it, because it was shot in an unspecified city. <laughs> oh, how did we not make that joke already? It's more of a visual joke. I suppose so. It'll have to be in the description. It's derivative with no soul. <laughs> oh, Dear me, I hate all three of these movies for different reasons. No matter how interesting Pulgasari can be in some way, shape, or form, that doesn't necessarily mean that I like it. Mm. Should you watch any of these movies? No, don't. Unless you oh, actually, some... I'd say watch Pulgasari out of pure interest because that is just weird enough. You don't need to see Young Gary, but Pulgasari is like, hey guys, have you ever heard of this North Korean Godzilla knockoff? Yeah, I was about to add the caveat, if you are in any way, shape, or form interested in North Korean cinema, then yeah. But if you want to watch a monster film, if, if that's what you're going for, if you just want to sit down with a monster flick, don't watch any of these movies. Watch anything None of these are good else. representations. You know, I, I realised that in asking when will man learn, I, I didn't stop to ask when will we learn. Clearly not before watching these movies. So, that's the main subject matter discussed, and we'd like to introduce a new bonus segment that I like to call Get Me Into It. Every episode, one of us will try and get the other person into something. Now, um, in this case, it would technically be tokusatsu, anime, or, well, we'll see how it goes. Um, so, Carmen Ranger, what are you trying to get me into? Okay, look, um, I might have misunderstood what you said um, when you first pitched this to me. see... Uh, when you said get me into it, what I heard was get it into me. So anything <laughs> I have prepared for this is kind of not really appropriate anymore. Um, off the top of my head. Can, can Anne Summers return it? Well, they have a strict no use 
yeah, you can't use it and then return it. So no, it's a bit of a bit of a sunk investment here. We'll save that one for latex power armor. Um, so if I'm <laughs> uh, if if I'm getting you into something, um, I have been. Ooh, this is something I've been really wanting to get someone into it forever. Uh, it's these two books called uh, one of them is Dark Lord of Durkholm, one of them is Year of the Griffin. They're absolutely beautiful fantasy stories. And it, it, they're by Dino and Jones, and it completely offends me that no one really is into them. They don't even have a cult following. It, 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 it vexes me greatly. More people need to talk about this. When were they written? Um, late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, it's, it's, um, ah. so like a lot of Win Jones, um, stuff, it's, it's fantasy and it's very tongue in cheek with how it's done. So, um, the basic premise of the Dark Lord of Durkholm is that we have this very typical generic fantasy land and every year, for half the year, a tour group goes through. Every week a new tour group starts and they have uh, their own kind of Lord of the Rings style D&D-esque adventure across the land, culminating in them fighting the Dark Lord and being returned to their world after yeah, returning the land to balance. This happens every week or so for half a year, and it completely <laughs> it completely raises the land to the ground. Um, it has culturally, ecologically, and economically crippled the continent, having to do this for fifty years. And it starts with them deciding to stop it. And the person doing this is from our world, who's managed to open up a portal with the help of a demon, and he's running this as a tourism thing. And um, the titular Dark Lord of Durkham. The Dark Lord is picked um, every year, a different person. And this year, it's Wizard Dirk, who is not very well regarded by the wizarding community in general, because his speciality is magical genetical, uh, sorry, genetic engineering. Half hmm. of his children are griffins, that he is genetically engineered himself. It's a really fun subject. Hang on. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not subject. Really fun way of looking at magic after reading Darwin Jones uh, Harry Potter was completely ruined for me as a kid I can never go back to that <laughs> uh, Year of the Griffin um, follows one of the Griffin children in that book growing up a bit more when she's going to the Wizarding University as a bit more slice of life and is a criticism of the higher education system as someone who dropped out of university I appreciate it well that got political fast yeah um, you absolutely I will buy the audiobooks for you if it'll get you into it. I will do that because I need to talk to someone about this. The only other person I know okay. who's read it is my mum. So I'm gonna make you. I'm gonna make you listen to them. So tell me more about it. So okay, so I usually seem very fond of stuff that tends to deconstruct the genre a little bit. Uh, yeah, not exclusively. I I do like things that played straight, but if something deconstructs it in a way that is clever and not just what if what if this but dark you know it does something different like that so if, if it portrays your typical fantasy adventure as a expensive tourist tourism thing um then yeah it's it, I, I just found that really a really nice concept because then it, it introduces um elements of you know is tourism good for local areas or is it bad for local areas sure it can bring in money money to some people but other people it leaves their land kind of trampled over leaves the local environment ruined it kind of dilutes the local culture as well because they have to engineer everything for the benefit of the tourists 
Wow. A lot, yeah, no, there's a lot to read into it. Do, does the world recover near the end? What? How? That just sounds like there's so much going on. The world is set on the path to recovering by the end. Um, it's estimated that it'll take at least another 50 or so years before they're fully recovered from what was done to them. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic series. And Dino and Jones had planned more sequels than just one. Unfortunately, though, she died before writing any of them. For those of you who don't know, she was also the author of uh, Howl's Moving Castle, which was turned into a film by Studio Ghibli, Yahai Miyazaki. Uh, also, very nice, but you know, I won't take too much time in this segment that I've already talked about something else for a while. Um, also, the book is quite tongue-in-cheek. She doesn't play everything straight. I've never seen her play something straight completely. There's always a little bit of a twist. So, okay, you've read Diana Wynne-Jones, and you like stuff that deconstructs the fantasy genre and goes into some depth on it. Hang about, are you going to criticize never read, Terry, read Pratchett. Terry Pratchett? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm calling it out now. Seriously. The quintessential fantasy no. comedy. I know. It's, it's on the list. I'll get around to it. But yeah, this sounds like this sounds interesting, and hmm. I like how it can fit into a lot of stuff that happens nowadays. Like, I think with certain, I know some areas near New Guinea with the introduction of Western influences can really affect the economy and hmm. the ecological state of the place. So, yeah, that seems quite fascinating. Like I said, if it'll get you to listen to them, I will buy you the audiobooks. Uh, do they exist in some physical form or in ebook uh, form? Yeah, I mean, I could buy the books if you want. I mean, you can you can get them as ebooks, probably. Pretty sure. Almost certain. Ninety-five percent. Okay. Ninety-six. I'll try and look into having a look at them then. I mean, you've definitely got me into it by explaining how it deconstructs it. Hmm. I like something that it does go into some depth. The um, the archetypal fantasy story. It needs something. You can't really go for um, the standards. Well, Harry Potter kind of made fantasy bigger again, and yeah, very successful. And George R. R. Martin's stuff, you know, was great. It it helped yield long sagas, but yeah. Artemis Fowl and Darwin Jones books ruined Harry Potter for me because they showed me what compelling characters and good world building were. And after that, mm. I couldn't go back to Harry Potter and enjoy it the same way. So all the fun of fantasy without the author being a turf. I have a massive rant. I, I, don't, I don't care about J.K. Rowling. I really don't care about her. What I care about is Harry Potter and the massive rant I have stored up about the magic system and how lazy it is. I won't deliver it on the podcast, but it is constantly burning inside me because I really hate how lazy Harry Potter is in that regard. Oh my man! In that case, I'd need to get I need to get my girlfriend in on this because she is a massive Harry Potter fan. It won't and... like, we we can't. I I won't stand for it. I mean, you'd have to you know be behind screens because it might get bloody. But still, I mean, yeah, there are probably ways in how it's explained. The way magic does work for me is a bit of an outsider. Yeah, it just seemed a little bit, little bit pulling it out of the hats. But hmm. yeah, it's kind of a shame that fantasy is dominated by um, your Harry Potters. Yeah, I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing can be done about it. I, I, I respect what that series has achieved. I don't necessarily respect it, but I respect the kind of cultural behemoth it it was for a good long while. But back to the main subject, I'd say, yeah, you've gotten me interested in uh, um, the Dark Lord of societal consequences. <laughs> oh, good. Now that you've said that, I'm going to pest you until you read it. 
You mentioned genetic engineering. Is this... Please tell me there's some Island of Dr. Moreau style stuff. Do any of the characters wear ice on their heads? No. Can I, can I remake it where this Dark Lord is a morbidly obese Marlon Brando type? You already got that, though. Uh, the, the, the creatures I need more created, of it. The creatures are all very well adjusted. Um, he's, he created sarcastic geese. He, he tried to breed them for intelligence, but they just became sarcastic. Uh, he's got uh, carnivorous miniature sheep, invisible cats, miniature monkeys, a uh, giant chicken... The uh, the Griffin. Surely she must have taken some inspiration from Pratchett here. Oh, almost certainly. She, uh, Pratchett spoke very highly of her work as well. Oh wow! Uh, he he's trying to grow nylon plants. There's a lot of uh, cultural contamination from our world. He's trying. Mm. He ends up trying to grow coffee and oranges and stuff like that because they don't have those in their world. Yeah, you've sold me on this one now. Both books have some of the most compelling characters I've ever come across. I. With this kind of thing, I absolutely cannot be relied upon to give an objective evaluation of its of its quality, because I love it so much that I'm completely blind to any flaws it may or may not have. I just love it, and I can't feel anything other than love for it. Well, it's good to see you finally enjoying something in this episode, because, uh, man, Yon Gary really didn't spark any joy in you, did it? No, it, it does not spark joy. Ugh. I'm, I'm never going to watch any of these movies again. Ah, oh, no, I might um, try and watch Pulgasari again after a few drinks, get some mates in, and be like, hey, you want to see something weird? This was North Korean. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I think this um, wraps it all up quite nicely. We looked at three films that we thought would have a bit more of an appeal, but frankly, they're just a little bit naff. And one yeah. has massive human rights violations. <laughs> that's... that's, that's... So it was a plus, isn't it? That's always a conversation starter. Hey, you want to watch this movie? It was made using slave labour. It's not the best way to uh, promote something. That's why um, you don't see fast fashion companies saying, look, these are so cheap because they were made in a sweatshop. <laughs> it baffles me that this movie, that Pulgasar was available outside of Korea, North Korea. Yeah, I think there were some Japanese releases, there were some actual yeah. screenings in the West and a few small cinemas, and people just really watched the hell out of it. They were fascinated by it. It's just so unique and bizarre, and that's the only thing that makes it stand out from your Yongaris, because it's just, it encapsulates this weird period in North Korean history. If Pulgasari was a South Korean film, no one would care. No. It's the elements of the eerie side of it. It's... Hmm the vibe that oh my god these people were abducted and forced to make this it's just horrible again that just kind of sums up my my opinion of this entire episode the subject matter to varying degrees and various degrees of seriousness just horrible mm. but what do you think listeners um do you have any better views on yongari do you think pulgasari has any other virtues to it We'd really like your opinions on this one, because, I mean, otherwise it's just two dudes in an echo chamber assuming we're right about everything. We'd love to have a dissenting opinion. Um, please um, tell us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and we'd really love to get an idea of what you think about it. Do you think Young Gary had a bit more to it? Did it have more of an appeal? We'd love to find out. We could even try and retread it in a later episode, oh, because... No. Hey, we yeah, we need some of that sweet, sweet engagement, yo. I will never trust someone who likes the Yongari reboot. If you do, let me know so that I can do my best to avoid you. 
Ah, uh, you will be an enemy faction known entirely as the Friends of Gary. There's <laughs> uh, something just funny about calling him Monster Gary. I, I'm just going along like the usual Zilla vibe. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, that's, that's half of why it's so yeah. funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate that movie so much. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm sorry that I've been a bit of a sad sack. It's just these movies inspire nothing but, at best, apathy from me. Um, I promise that next episode I'll be a lot more peppy. Probably. Fingers crossed. This is Hypnopotamus Rex signing off. This has been one hell of a journey. I'm Carmen Rager, and I really hated the Ongaree. <laughs>